the first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. We have these crawl spaces in the house. In a lot of these Midwestern homes, you, there's bookcases in the wall, and you pull the bookshelf out, there's a crawl space, like storage, right? Like an attic. I was like, I'm going to pull the, the, the bookcases out and look for my mother's body. Like, this is the conversation I'm having as an 11-year-old child with a police detective. Welcome to the First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Fanick. I'm sitting far away from Alexis Linkletter and Billy Jensen. Alexis, are you indulging in a bevy? Ooh, maybe. It's. Mm. I mean, listen, it's after 6.45. I may be at my office, but Billy used to share this office with me. We do have a bar. Which is delightful. And decanters of, uh, like a decanter. Oh, Billy made a special decanter with our names on it for Unraveled and cups and decanters. Oh, that's cute. Like for booze, which is cute. Um, So yes, I am indulging in a beverage because I'm I'm an uptight weirdo um, sober. (laughs) So you're welcome Uh, for doing it. You're not wrong. Yeah. Uh, You're welcome, (laughs) listeners. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Today is part two of the three-part series on Noreen Boyle. So if you haven't listened to last week, you need to go listen. This is not going to make any sense to you. And then you can binge this one. So that'll be very delightful for you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But until we jump into the case, we got to know what day is it today, Bill Lay? Well, today's September 1st, and it is... How is Ginger it real quick? Cat. How is it September? How are we all? almost in 2020? The last like the last two years didn't even exist. This uh-huh. is unfair. so upsetting. Upsetting. Go on, Billy. Sorry. It's Ginger Cat Appreciation Day. Mm. Not just any cat, but a ginger cat. I like half mm. of that. I like the ginger <laughs> part of that. Mm, not the cat. I would never hurt a cat. I like cats. They're really cute. I would never hurt a cat. But they're not loyal. But, but let me tell you. <laughs> but they're not loyal. And But, you know, I would rescue one if it was going to get hurt. I, I like animals. I love dogs. But I would I like cats. But they don't love you as much as a dog would. Cats aren't for me. And I'm allergic to them. But I like a ginger one if I was going to pick one. No, I like a hairless one. I love sphinx cats. Oh, my they're gosh. so amazing. I also will say cats are cute. Cat, cats are cute. Cats are also what I, at this point in my life, need as a pet. I need a pet that doesn't need me and can kind of do its own thing and check in when it wants to. That's Maybe the tides have turned for you. <laughs> Maybe you need a hairless cat. Uh, I'm allergic to cats, and I think that you're allergic to their saliva, not the hair, but maybe mm, both. The dander, I thought. I don't know. But I do love – I mean, somebody will let us know in the Facebook group. I love an alien sphinxy cat. They look like they're from outer space. They look like uh, raw chickens. I love it. They're so cute. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're very cute. All, all cats are cute in their own way. Um, what other days do we have, Billy, after that cat not, chat? <laughs> not much. Uh, this is a good one. Building and Code Staff Appreciation Day. Okay. Listen, you need building codes or else the stuff is going to fall down. That is true. Infrastructure. And Alexis, I hate to do this to you. Oh, no. It's National Cherry Popover Day. What is that like a cherry Pop-Tart? The cooked fruit fans have like too much time on their hands. Yeah. I will say that. It is, it is pretty insane like there's way more cooked fruit days than there are like any other cookie, days mm-hmm. brownie days even just yeah. normal human days frankly yeah. 
but okay, you cooked fruit enthusiasts need to get another hobby besides jamming and canning preserves, but we'll stand by for that. And, and really, uh, I don't even know what you have to do to make a day, but how, whatever applying the process to the, is. the the uh, Ministry of Days. Yeah, the Ministry of Days, really, there's probably somebody on the inside that just really, really loves cooked fruit. Because there really only is, at most, maybe 10 days for a day. And so that's only, you know, thir- three 3,000 days, yeah, 3,600 mini- days. Yeah, that's right. Ministry of Days, we're watching you. I think we need a day. We'll look into it. Oh, we'll apply for a day status right away. Right away. All right. Well, that's enough of that. So let's turn down the lights. And turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you. In our last episode, we met the Boyle family from Mansfield, Ohio, cheating husband Jack, had a lovely wife Noreen, but they were in the middle of a divorce after being married for 22 years. And on December 31st, 1989, Collier awoke to find his mother missing. The then 11-year-olds had heard noises in the middle of the night, and when he woke up to find her not there, the sounds that led him to believe that something terrible had happened to his mother. Collier's father told him that Noreen had gone on a little vacation, but little did Jack Boyle know that Noreen had confided in her son, Collier, telling him that she would never, ever leave him, and if anything ever happened to her, in all likelihood, Jack had killed her. Noreen's prophetic words to her son seemed to be coming true. And as far as Collier believed, it was up to him to reveal the truth that his father was a cold-blooded murderer. We left off on the morning of December 31st, 1989. That was the morning that Collier realized his mother was missing. His dad, Jack, told Collier that he was not to call the police. He was not to call or contact anyone regarding his mother's absence. Then he left the house, leaving 11-year-old Collier and his three-year-old sister, Elizabeth, in the care of his mother, their grandmother. And here's the thing that no one realized. When Noreen told Collier that she was fearful that Jack might kill her, Collier took that seriously. Even as a little boy, he made plans. I had stashed all of my my mother's friends' information, everything, and uh, I wrote them on a piece of paper, and I stuck them inside a, a, a hat in my Garfield doll. <laughs> Collier actually had the wherewithal to write down the numbers of some of his mother's friends, in case he ever needed to contact them. Collier wasn't going to listen to his dad or his Grammy, who was blindly following her son's orders. So following this awkward, uncomfortable, sad morning, Jack Boyle left the house and drove to Erie, Pennsylvania, which is where he was essentially setting up his new life. My father leaves. My grandma lays down the law. You're not to call anybody. You're not to do this. My mother had just bought a cordless phone in the house like a couple of months prior. My grandmother, I don't think, knew that. So I went and got the cordless phone, which was in my mom's office. I take it up to my room. I get the, I get the numbers. I go into the bathroom. I start calling people. 
First person I call is Shelly Bowden. Shelly Bowden was Noreen Boyle's best friend. And Noreen had made plans to bring the kids to visit Shelly on that same day, which was New Year's Eve. So Collier dialed the number they had written on a hidden piece of paper. Shelly answered. And Shelly goes, Collier, what's going on? Are you guys still coming down today? Because we were going to meet her on New Year's Eve in Columbus to go see her and have lunch and hang out. And I was great friends with her kids, and so it was going to be this whole thing. No. There would be no celebrating or seeing Noreen that day. And she said, are you guys coming down? What's wrong? And I said, mommy's not here. Like, mommy's gone. My father's gone and all this. And then my, I heard my grandmother come up and say, who are you talking to? And I hang up the phone. And I hide the phone in the bathroom. I was like, I, I was, oh, I'm in the toilet, Grammy. So I snuck around. I eventually got word out to like three or four of my mom's friends that day, within an hour of my father leaving. So to be clear, Collier was told not to contact anybody about the fact that Noreen was nowhere to be found. But Collier managed to call several of his mom's friends despite threats not to do so, made by his father and his grandmother. And as luck would have it, the risk paid off. Because one or several of Noreen's friends must have relayed Collier's story to the police. And the very next morning, there was a knock at the door. The next day, which would have been January 1st, 1990, two uniform officers show up to our house. My grandmother doesn't want to let them in. And they end up coming inside. And I start showing them around the house. And my grandmother is furious. And she's trying to call my father to tell my father that he's let the police into the house. Now, put yourself in Collier's shoes for just a minute. He is terrified because he disobeyed his father, a man that Collier believed had killed his mother in the middle of the night with a house full of people present. That's bold. Collier was scared to death of this man and of the potential repercussions he would face for what he'd done. I pull one of these police officers aside, uniform officers, and I say, my mother would never do this. I do not trust my father as far as I get thrown, because my, and literally my mom used to say that. So I used that same idiomatic expression and said, you know, hey, I don't trust my father as far as I get thrown. Collier hoped that one of these cops would take him seriously. And while the uniform officers left, it seems as though at least one of them listened to the 11-year-old. Because a missing persons case was filed at the police station. And it caught the eye of at least one person who had the ability to do something about it. The next day, another gentleman shows up who's a detective. His name is David Messmore. He saw this just come across his desk and he said, oh, I'm going to look into this because it was New Year's. There was nothing a whole lot going on in small town, Ohio. And he went to go look and he thought it was intriguing. Doctor's wife, this is interesting. Remember David Messmore's name. It becomes very important later and you'll hear a lot about him several times through the course of the story. So Collier's father had still not returned home by this point, which was two days after the incident Collier heard in the middle of the night. So Collier and Elizabeth are still in the care of their grandmother, who follows her son's orders and doesn't allow Detective Messmore through the door. David is a very personal guy, but my grandmother is not letting him in the house. And he finds a way to sort of charm his way in a little bit. My mother used to have this expression growing up. She's like, Collier, in life you have to grab the brass ring. And I recognize at that moment, this is the brass ring. I say to Dave, I, I pull him aside and I... And I literally say to him, 
My mother would never leave me. She would never do this. Something has happened to her. I think she's dead. Detective David Messmore looked at the scared and upset 11-year-old boy, and he believed him. He believed me. Like, he literally believed this 11-year-old kid. This is sort of when the whole thing just... The, the whole ball, ball of yarn starts to unravel. There was very little Detective Messmore could do in that moment. Collier's father wasn't there, so he couldn't be questioned. And he had no warrant to search the home, so he left. The next day, on January 3rd, Collier was still under the care of his grandmother. And his mother, Noreen, had still not returned. Which heightened and also solidified Collier's worst fears even further. But despite this, Collier returned to school. So I go back to school on January the 3rd. And in typical small-town fashion, word of Noreen's inexplicable disappearance had spread, and Collier felt all eyes on him. Everybody in the school was like, okay, this is weird. Noreen Boyle is gone. What's going on with Collier? Despite the rumors and whispers, to Collier's relief, the school administrators not only listened to him, They comforted him and took him seriously. So Collier pulled his principal aside and asked her to make a call. I tell my principal at the school, I say, I want to talk to this guy, Dave Messmore, again. Dave Messmore, the detective who had gone to the Boyle home the day before. I want to call him. I go to the office, I'm like, I want you to call the Manson Police Department and call this guy named David Messmore. So she does, and I get him to come down to the the school to talk to me. Because I'm in a safe place. I trust everybody in my school. I don't trust being home. Noreen Boyle was on the board of Collier's school, so she and the principal were pretty friendly, which definitely helped to grease the wheels and get this done. The principal called the Mansfield PD, and Detective Messmore was on his way to speak with Collier again. But this time, it was in the safety of the school. I was going to find my mom. Hell or high water. I'm going to find out what happened to my mother. And I was on a full-on locked-in mission. Dave Messmore came down. I started telling him everything I knew. I told him about Sherry. Sherry, the woman Collier had seen his father kissing on two separate occasions. After the second occasion, Collier was asked by his father to lie to his mother, which he did. He later felt guilty and told her the truth, which was the incident that sort of cinched this whole divorce situation. It was the straw that broke the camel's back and prompted Noreen to formally file for divorce. Collier continued telling David Messmore everything he knew. When I got him down to the school is when I told him exactly what happened. The thuds, the walking down the hall, the scream that woke me up in the middle of the night, me looking for blood in the next morning, the whole thing. And the footsteps, the, the time, all of that. I told him about my parents' whole story, how my father was getting more violent, how my father had this violent temper, how like he had this girlfriend, Sherry, who was planning this other life, uh, like whatever was going on. And things were not good at home. And my mother is dead. you got to find her. Detective Messmore listened carefully to what Collier said and started investigating separately using the info Collier provided to him. In the coming days and weeks, Collier alternated between being cared for by his father whenever he was in town and his grandmother, who, remember, was Jack's mother, not Noreen's. Collier remained terrified of his father and extremely fearful that his father would find out that he was already secretly helping the police. And I'm in the household pretty much scared for my life that 
if my father finds out what I'm doing, he's probably going to kill me. I, I already know what my father is capable of because he's a very violent man growing up. Obviously, my mother isn't there to protect me. Okay, so some clarity on this. Jack had been slowly moving his life to Erie, Pennsylvania, even prior to Noreen pulling the trigger and filing for divorce. And although Erie is in another state, it's not particularly far. It's about 175 miles or three hours away. And he was planning on opening a new practice and eventually buying a house there. So when Jack would come and go and be gone for nights at a time, this is what he was doing. Collier recalled his routine during this very strange time in his life. I leave for school in the morning. He's already gone. I come home from school. He's still not home. And my grandmother was basically, at at that point, like raising us because my mother's not around. Uh, There's a very weird energy and vibe around the house. Not only because my mother is not there, but just because there's an air of like something's happening. And I'm aware of it. Yeah. So the vibe around the house was weird for sure especially because Collier believed the man who was caring for him, his father, was a cold-blooded killer. It's one of those things where I don't know if they know that I'm talking to the police. Despite the looming danger, Collier continued to talk to Detective Messmore from school, almost daily. Between him and I, over the next 20-some days, I literally am talking to him almost every day from school, and he's coming down to school, and I'm like, okay, When I go home, I'll have a window of about 45 minutes between I get home from school and my grandmother starts making dinner and my father comes home. I'm going to go and we have these crawl spaces in the house. In a lot of these Midwestern homes, there's bookcases in the wall and you pull the bookshelf out, there's a crawl space, like storage, right? Like an attic. I was like, I'm going to pull the bookcases out and look for my mother's body. Like this is the conversation I'm having as an 11 year old child with a police detective. The idea that like a little boy is saying things like, I'm going to go search for my mother's body in this crawl space when my my dad or Grammy goes to sleep is so heartbreaking and upsetting to me. Um, like this little boy, like the tra- the trauma of like speculating that your mother is dead one thing, the trauma that your father has maybe done it's another, the fact that you're trying to find your mother's body, I'm just like... Sick over it. I mean, I, as an adult, it would be uh, like unthinkable to even be helping the police in that way or doing anything beyond thinking of just the terrifying thought that your loved one might be gone. So to have a little, little boy just have the wherewithal to do any of this is honestly mind blowing. It really is. And you also wonder, and I know the police, their hands are tied. But I was, as I was going through this and, and reading this script, Lex, I was like in fear for this kid, oh you know, God. because if this guy is willing to kill his mom, what else is he willing to do? And he could easily make the kid disappear if the kid was able to give some information to the police. Well, it's like the Susan Powell uh, story where he th- was still seeing his little kids and then he ended up killing them. Like you just... You never know with somebody like that that's dangerous yeah. and violent. Right, because like parental rights are so uh, precious that like the courts generally don't take them away unless you can prove. And right now, like no one's under arrest, you know? So it's There's like- no evidence or anything, yeah. And while David Messmore, the detective, believed Collier, it's like, until we can arrest him, you're not safe. So you yeah. just imagine sort of the, the emotional state as an 11-year-old Collier was put in, and it is very heartbreaking. 
So meanwhile, Collier's dad, Jack Boyle, refused to speak with law enforcement about his missing wife. My father started having his divorce attorney write letters and tell the police, you can't come in here. He does, Dr. Boyle doesn't want to talk to you. He has nothing to say, yada, yada. And my father's attorney is at the house a lot with whatever's going on. I don't know what he knows or whatever, but it's very suspicious. All the while, Collier was walking on eggshells while helping to move the investigation forward. I would go to school and I would say to my principal, please call Dave Metzmore, because I wanted updates on what was going on on the case. Do you have any new leads? Do you have anything like this? So what happened next? How long did this dance go on? I would say a couple of weeks go by, and it's a weekend. Collier's father takes him with him to run some errands, and at some point he stops for gas. And it's in this moment that Collier sees an opportunity. He goes in to pay for gas, and I immediately start like scrambling through his car. Right. And I like looking, I see him in the gas station and I open up his console, like the, the center console of the truck. And in there are two Polaroid photos. One is of his mistress, who I recognize and I've met her kids. She's got her kids with her and there's they're sitting in front of a fireplace that's covered in plastic like it's a new fireplace. The second is a Polaroid of a house. All right. So we have to pause for a second to unpack this. Photo number one, let's start with a picture of Jack Boyle's mistress, Sherry. We've talked about her several times by this point. I, I hope you know who she is. Jack kissed Sherry and brought Collier to spend time with Sherry and her kids. And as a reminder, told his mother when he wasn't supposed to. It later resulted in the pulling of the trigger of the official divorce proceedings. So Collier says in this photo, they were in front of a fireplace and it looked like to be covered in plastic, like there was renovations or that it was new or under construction. So what's the significance of this photo? So that's a rhetorical question because we're going to move on to photo number two, the picture of a house. This evokes other questions. What's the significance of this house? Where is it? And is it the same house where this photo of Sherry and the kids is taken in the interior? We just so happen to have a photo of this house right in front of us. So Billy, Jack, the house. Yes. So the house is a is a very large center hall colonial with a a side garage. So the garage is on on the side. Um, it is it's a big house, double sash windows, you know, and you can tell looking at that fire. There's that fireplace is is pretty prominent chimney for that fireplace. It's a big old house. It's a huge house, and it's very reminiscent of the East Coast, any of you who grew up there. It's exactly what you'd see in any really, like, suburb on the East Coast. It's it's square. It's it's sort of boring. <laughs> it's um, very boring. has a big red door, lots of windows, but are narrow. Yeah. I wouldn't buy it. Yes. But, <laughs> but I've honestly, most of my friends growing up had houses that look like this. Like, this is very quintessential, like, Long Island this suburbs. Is Center Hall Colonial. This is the house I had in Wisconsin, except smaller than this. So. Exactly. Like, it's, it's mm-hmm. exactly like what you would expect. Um, but it's a little, little it's scary plain. to me. The Colonials. I'm the not colonials, into it. They, yeah, the Colonials <laughs> were never really flamboyant people. I'm not into it. So we have some more questions. Is Jack moving to Erie? to set up a new life with Sherry? Like do the wife, kids, white picket fence thing with her? If so, why? Remember, Jack had had countless affairs before Sherry. 
affairs Noreen was actually aware of. So what made Sherry different? And don't worry, the answers to all these questions are coming. But for now, back to Collier. He was inside his dad's truck and discovered these Polaroids while his dad was paying for gas. Collier spots his dad walking back towards his car. I put it back in the thing like nothing's going on. For whatever reason, Collier believed these Polaroids to be significant. So the next day at school, he resumed his routine of going to the principal's office and asking her to call Detective Messmore. I said, Dave... I found pictures. This is what I found. And I said, Sherry, it's definitely Sherry. It's her two kids. And the fireplace isn't like, it's, it's obviously there's a new house somewhere. And that's when they got the, okay. And obviously they were doing their police work, but that's when the house came into play. And I know at that moment, like it's on. So if you're a super busy person and you don't have time to go to the gym, or maybe you just don't even want to go to the gym and work out in front of a bunch of different people, you need to check out the Aloe Moves app. I'm obsessed with this app. So it makes it easy to keep your wellness routine on track because they have everything in one place. There's yoga, there's Pilates, fitness classes, mindfulness, self-care tips, healthy recipes, and so much more. So either you're a beginner or you're an advanced person, Aloe Moves has the flow or class that will fit your schedule. Their classes range from five minutes to an hour, depending on what you're feeling that day. So even if you only have five minutes, you can just get some movement in. I used Aloe Moves all during the pandemic. It was amazing. Like I was on my yoga journey and I was obsessed with it. So you can find stress relief with meditations, affirmations, face yoga, gua sha, dry brushing, and journaling for those quiet moments, even if you don't really want to get a workout on. And when it comes to sleep, it's just important as fitness and nutrition, and they've got you covered with Aloe Moves. So unlock your personal wellness routine with Aloe Moves. Go to Aloe Moves and use code FIRST for an exclusive 30-day free trial and enjoy 20% off an annual membership. That's allomoves.com, code FIRST, A-L-O-M-O-V-E-S.com, code FIRST. Everybody loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. So it's going to take you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. I'm really feeling this because... Lex and I both are really like into Gatsby stuff right now. So I am loving the vibe of this game. And you're going to step into the role as June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. It's perfect for all of the firsties out there. There's mystery, danger, and romance as you search for hidden objects from the parlors of New York to the sidewalks of Paris. And you can customize your very own luxuries estate island. Think expansive gardens and beautiful buildings and collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Okay, so listen, we are busy ladies over here on The First Degree, and when I have a moment of free time, I don't want to spend it grocery shopping. I want to spend it rotting on the couch and watching reality TV, and that is why I love Thrive Market. So Thrive Market is a go-to for all of my grocery and household essentials, and the convenience of getting everything online then quickly shipped to my doorstop is such a 
a huge time saver. So Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and sourcing methods. They actually restrict hundreds of ingredients across their food and cleaning categories. So you can go on their website and use their filters to suit any of your lifestyle needs. If you're allergic to a certain ingredient, if you just don't want to have it in your life, that's why Thrive Market is so awesome. So whether you're looking for organic snacks for your kids or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free pantry essentials, you can curate your own shopping experience with just a few clicks. I love this so much because I don't want to read every ingredient when I go to the grocery store. It's so easy to do it online, honestly, when I'm rotting on the couch. So join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order, plus a free $60 gift. Go to thrivemarket.com slash first for 30% off your first order, plus a free $60 gift. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash first. Thrivemarket.com slash first. Fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. No prepping, no cooking, or cleanup needed. There's over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. And there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Get started today and get after your goals. Plus, Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. For me, I was really struggling to get enough protein. I always do. But Factor's meals are protein-packed, and they're so good. And it's so easy when I'm slammed busy working in the middle of the day to just have lunch right there, not needing to do anything, except heat it up. Head to factormeals.com slash firstdegree50 and use code DEGREE50 to get 50% off. That's code DEGREE50 at factormeals.com slash firstdegree50 to get 50% off. Eleven-year-old Collier had been collecting information about his father to share with Detective Dave Messmore for weeks by this point. And the investigation into Jack Boyle really started picking up speed after Collier discovered some Polaroids in his father's car. One was a family photo of his mistress with her family, her name's Sherry. The other was what appeared to be a new house. After making the discovery, Collier alerted David Messmore. It had been about three weeks since Collier's mother, Noreen, had vanished after Collier heard violent noises in the middle of the night. And finally... It seemed as though all Collier had done was paying off, and proof of that would come in the form of a knock at the door of the Mansfield home that Noreen had vanished from, the home that Collier still lived in with his father, which came at 5 a.m. on the morning of January 24th. There are two people from Children's Services and the entire crime lab from the Mansfield Police Department at my doorstep of my house. My father is not home. They have a search warrant that children's services people say to me, you know, pack a bag, we're out of here in 20 minutes type thing, we're taking you away. After Collier leaves the house, he's taken to the residence of someone he's familiar and comfortable with, his school principal, the person who safely facilitated Collier's communication with Detective Messmore. That night when Collier was at the principal's house, he suffered what he describes as the worst asthma attack of his life. And it was so bad that he actually ended up in the hospital. And it was in the hospital under the care of a doctor that leads us to a moment we've been building towards since the beginning of this story. So I go in 
there's room in the hospital. I get a, like, a proper breathing treatment with a doctor friend of the family. After I take the breathing treatment and everything, they say, call your Lieutenant Messmore found your mother. And then there's this very long, awkward pause that must have lasted an eternity, but it probably only lasted about a second and a half. And they said, and she was dead. And I remember at the time I was sitting there and I was staring at like this electrical outlet in this small room in this hospital. And I just, the first words out of my mouth were that bastard. Because I knew. They had just confirmed what I had known for the last 25 days, which is my father murdered my mother. Now, where did Detective Messmore find Noreen? So I find this Polaroid that I had told, told Dave Messmore about of this house. By this point, Detective Messmore knew of Sherry, Jack Boyle's mistress. The investigation into Jack eventually revealed that he had purchased a home in Erie, Pennsylvania recently. The very same home that Collier found a Polaroid picture of in the console of his dad's car. Jack had purchased this house for about $300,000 back in what would be 1989. And here's something that really caught the police's attention. Jack had negotiated a January 1st move-in date during the closing of the house. And apparently he'd been very adamant about this and fought for this. Which, you know, is interesting as far as the timing is concerned. He'd also bought the home before Noreen filed for divorce, which was another surprise. And if you look at these two variables, it's pretty convenient timing considering Noreen vanished on New Year's Eve and the house was to be turned over to Jack on January 1st. Yeah. And also when you think about it too, January 1st, it's incredibly hard to find anybody to work because everybody's all hung over. It's a holiday. Mm -hmm. So you're not going to find movers on that day. Not only that, to get people to move out during the holidays, because the the days that precede New Year's Day is Christmas. And, you know, generally this is like a dead zone for any business. Exactly. So another thing, get this. Messmore tracked down the paperwork for the purchase of this house. And there was something glaring that stuck out. I find the house. They then have already started looking, and they find a house in Erie, Pennsylvania, that my father had purchased, and it was signed on a document. My mother's name was Noreen Schmid Boyle. The document was signed N, period, for the first initial, Sherry Boyle. So the mistress had signed the document for my father using a variation of my mother's name. First of all, my father wasn't married to her, so her last name wasn't Boyle. Second of all, she had her first name was Sherry, not N or Noreen. So they thought that was immediately suspicious. Once police knew where this house was and knew that there was a suspicious forged signature on the deed, they zeroed in on the location of the property. Dave Massmore gets a search warrant and gets cooperation with the Erie, Pennsylvania Police Department across state lines. It says we need to go look at this house in Mill Creek Township. And this house was, in fact, the same home reflected in the Polaroid that Collier found. It was just a five-minute walk to the shores of Lake Erie, a very affluent area. Ironically, a neighborhood perfect for raising a family. By this point, with the help of Pennsylvania authorities, Detective Messmore had secured a search warrant of this property. They go in, they're walking through the house. And they go down into the basement. They notice, I don't know if they notice an odor or what, but they go down to the basement. 
But they're kind of like, we don't see anything. They just see like freshly laid carpet, these shelves that had been built. Detective Messmore was certain he was finally closing in on Jack Boyle. But when the police get there, there's nothing out of the ordinary. Was this just another dead end? Where was Noreen? They kept pressing forward. They kept looking. And then they're looking around, and one of the guys that's there with them looks at the wall and says, hey, Dave, and calls him over. And there's a splatter of concrete that's fairly fresh on the wall. A splash of concrete means that, in all likelihood, fresh concrete had been poured recently. And then they're like, okay, I think we have something. And that's when they start breaking all the shelves. They pull the shelves off. They find this AstroTurf, which they had had a receipt that my father purchased some AstroTurf because I saw it in my house and I told them about it. I said, we have this AstroTurf carpet and this tarp. These are ultimately things that (laughs) that my father used as a burial shroud. So they dig up this floor and underneath, after about three hours, they pull out my mother's body, which is wrapped in a blue tarp that I had told Dave Messmore about previously that I had seen at the house. Authorities pulled Noreen Boyle from the basement of this home. Her body had been wrapped in a tarp with a plastic bag over her head. On her wrist was the watch that she always wore, which had stopped working on December 31st, the night of her murder. Jack Boyle had broken up the concrete floor, buried Noreen, poured over fresh concrete, and built a shelving unit on top of the area to conceal it further. Dental records and a DNA comparison would ultimately confirm that the person pulled from the basement was, in fact, Noreen. An autopsy would reveal that Noreen had suffered blunt force trauma injuries to her head, but her cause of death was ruled asphyxiation from being suffocated by the plastic bag that was over her face. All of this is gut-wrenching for Collier, obviously, because while he's already sensed his mother was dead, the confirmation and cause of death would have been horrifying. Even more would be revealed after the discovery of the house and Noreen's remains. Mainly, what came to light is that Jack's mistress, Sherry, was pregnant with his child, which above all else, helped fill in additional blanks as to Jack's potential motive, beyond the contentious divorce. That motive to want to harm his wife, Noreen. And it answered the question we posed earlier about what made Sherry so different than all the women that came before her. She was pregnant. Right. And not only that, by this point, Sherry had actually already given birth to this child. So this is another key thing to note in this timeline, this this urgency that Jack wanted to get into this house. This baby had been born on January 12th, two weeks after Noreen disappeared. The little girl was named Christine after Jack's mother, Gammy, which is crazy to me that this woman, like... It's insane. The idea of naming a child, the idea, whether maybe it was Jack Boyle's idea. It's like, I want to name this baby after my mom, the baby I'm going to raise after I murder my wife and, you know, buy this house in this adulterous situation. It's just disgusting. Yeah. It's, it's got Norman Bates elements to it. Yeah. yeah, it does. And just such like a facade to me. I'm like, oh, it's after your mom. Like you don't even like women. You don't like people if you do shit like this. But anyways, as a reminder, Jack's mother had been watching Collier while Jack was going to and from Pennsylvania to conceal his crimes. So clearly the mom's in his control. 
So my father had purchased this house to move into with his then pregnant mistress and her two children and then myself and Elizabeth because he bought this house to bury my mother in. It was later revealed that when Jack was touring this house prior to purchasing it, he asked some very alarming and glaring questions of the realtor when looking at the basement. When he purchased the house in court, it came out that he had uh, asked about lowering the basement floor, which the real estate agent thought was a really weird question because nobody's ever asked that. And she's like, it had a beautiful basement, in it, apparently. And he asked about what the, the concrete floor was made of in case he wanted to lower it. And he claimed that he wanted to put a basketball court in there. Collier learned that his mom had been found while he was in the hospital after suffering that horrible asthma attack. And that was following CPS removing Collier and his sister Elizabeth from Jack's custody the previous day. This guy, this little boy, had been put through the ringer. He's 11 years old, and the hell of the previous three weeks is pretty unimaginable. He heard and learned the events that led to his mother's death, and he feared his father would kill him. He had to sneak around and help police. And now he lay in a hospital bed, and all that he knew had been confirmed by cold, hard evidence and the discovery of his mom's body. Devastation, pain, confusion, trauma doesn't begin to cover it. To top it all off, Collier would have to reconcile the fact that his father would probably be going to prison for the rest of his life. Search warrants were executed at the office and the Mansfield home. Everyone the couple knew was interviewed, including their three-year-old daughter, Elizabeth. Now remember, Elizabeth had been very likely sleeping in Noreen and Jack's room during Noreen's murder. And according to the Erie Daily Times, Elizabeth used a doll to show police how her mother was choked and wrapped up like a snowman. And the realtor who sold the Erie, Pennsylvania house to Jack Boyle was interviewed. And they explained that on December 4th of 1989, which was about a month prior to Noreen's murder, Jack had contacted them and asked about what was under the basement floor in case he wanted to make any alterations to the house. And the realtor also thought it was kind of weird that Jack had outright bought the house for its selling price. He didn't bargain or ask for a lower amount. Jack explained that there was a sense of urgency, that he needed the house as quickly as possible. And this is all pretty strange because, you know, it coincided with the birth of Sherry's child. It seemed like Jack had this really, really frantic timeline to get everything done by then. And there's more. Police learned that on December 19th, Jack had rented an electric jackhammer from a rental center in Mansfield to use on the weekend of December 29th. A jackhammer would logically be used to bust up the cement basement in the Erie house. This guy didn't even attempt to hide his tracks, so check this out. On January 4th, Jack went to a floor company in Mansfield and purchased green indoor-outdoor carpeting, the same kind of carpeting that was found covering the floor where Noreen Boyle's grave was in the basement of this house. Then on January 8th, Jack was seen buying more of this carpet from a salesman in Erie, Pennsylvania. So as methodical and meticulous as Jack Boyle believed himself to be, I mean, he was a doctor. He thought a lot of himself. Sorry, dude, you were fucking outsmarted by your 11-year-old son. All of this meant that time had run out for Jack Boyle. My father's arrested on January 25th, 1990. They caught him at our house. 
They arrest him for my mother's murder at our house in Mansfield. Jack Boyle was arrested and charged with one count of aggravated murder, which held a 15 years to life in prison sentence. Also, one count of felony abuse of a corpse, which held a 12-month prison sentence and a fine of $2,500. And on top of all of that, a judge was concerned that Jack could post bail if it wasn't set high enough, so bail was set to $5 million. Media attention was about to erupt. Once Noreen's body was found and Jack was behind bars, the public's interest ignited, especially since they were finding out new details that the police had uncovered. This was the biggest case this small town had ever seen. And this also was a very well-known couple in the area. News outlets picked up the story in several states. If you think Jack, after being caught and arrested, found himself humbled and would agree to plead guilty and spare his children the pain of a trial, you'd be mistaken. And with all that's been revealed, believe it or not, we are just getting started. I heard a thud. A little. Okay, could you describe this sound for us? Okay, it was about this loud. And then about a minute and a half later, I heard, or I mean half a minute later, I heard um, a thud like this. even louder. And at that time, I was petrified. I mean, I was just scared. All right. Well, a huge thank you to Collier for being with us again this week. He will be with us again next week to finish this story up. And you guys cannot miss the ending of this story. So if you're listening out there and you have a story to tell, please email us. Hello at the first degree podcast.com. You can follow us on Instagram at the first degree at Alexis Linkletter at Billy Jensen at Jack Vanek. Join our Facebook group. We're talking true crime all the time. And tomorrow we'll have a brand new episode of Killing Time right in your feed. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers and keep your friends close. But But not not that close. What day was it today? Happy fucking cherry turnover burner to the ground day. (laughs) Another fried fruit. Bye. Shout out to Jared Monaco for scoring and creating original music for The First Degree. Love you, Jer. Producing by Caitlin Cleveland. Producing an additional writing by Taylor Rogers. Producing Alan Santiago for Podcast One. Sources for this episode are The Mansfield Journal, Forensic Files, GoEerie.com, The Erie Daily News, Richland Source, and as always, our first degree guest is always our largest source, plus course documents. The South Dakota Stories, Volume 7. My trip to South Dakota was the best summer ever. Now I don't need to go to Mars because I've been to the Badlands. And I caught a bigger walleye than Dad when we went to the Missouri River. Then I rode my bike through these huge rocks called needles. Ooh, I also saw my first herd of bison, even a fuzzy furry baby one. I can't wait to go back and see more. There's so much South Dakota, so little time.